Well, this is an interesting topic because we've talked about it quite a bit for a very long time. You'll remember, I've probably told you this in the past. I was based in Beijing for several years as a foreign correspondent, uh, covered Asia for both Global and CTV while I lived there. And of course, this was at the time right around the Olympics, which was a big a coming out party for China at the time, often seen as a big coming out party for China. And for a very long time, and this was a conversation that went on all the time while I was there, there were sort of two uh, schools of thought on China. One was that uh, that the more it liberalized, uh, the more that it became, that it opened up to the world, uh, the more liberal it would become, the more like us it would become. And there were those who thought that wasn't true. Um, and it was an argument that went on a lot. And generally those who advocated in favor of the latter were those who felt there was a lot of opportunity in China, a lot of room to make money, um, and that China would naturally become a more open and liberal society as it got wealthier, as the rules of, as the economy grew, as people got wealthier, they would demand it, in other words, was part of the whole argument. Uh, well, a new book lays, uh, looks into that a bit more deeply. Um, it delves into the intelligence methods applied by Beijing since the 80s to influence politicians, diplomats, academics, all with the aim of shaping a certain global perception of China's so-called peaceful rise. Uh, it goes into China's Ministry of State Security, which I will not explain to you, but I'm certainly certain my guest can, um, and how agents were used essentially to influence politicians, diplomats, officials, and so on. Uh, this was not done by accident. This was a tactic. It was done deliberately. And in many ways, it was done in a coercive way. Um, also, how far does it go back? A lot of people point to the rise of the new president, Xi Jinping, not new anymore, heading into what what is now an unprecedented third term. Uh, but perhaps it started much earlier than that. Again, it, may, it raises many questions. First and foremost, why has it taken so many countries so long to wake up to the reality of what's going on, no matter what the end goal was from China? The truth is we've known for a very long time that organizations are operating within our countries that don't act in our best interest. They're clearly acting in China's best interest. So why have we allowed it to happen? Um, and how come China's growing more prosperous and powerful and yet become more aggressive at home and aggressive on the world stage? Well, to answer all of that is the author of a fascinating new book called Spies and Lies, How China's Covert Operators Fooled the World. Uh, it's by Australian Alex Josky. He is also a senior fellow at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, uh, who is well known for his in-depth Chinese language uh, research. He speaks Chinese, clearly, and he joins us tonight from Canberra. Thanks so much for your time and congratulations on the book. Thanks, Ben. I'm looking forward to the discussion. It's it's what's really interesting I, I found because I've watched other interviews you've done, so forgive me for doing my homework, but is that this is something that you stumbled upon quite early in your studies. You sort of were awakened to the fact that some of these organizations, even on your own university campus, might not be what they appeared to be. That's right. Uh, looking at sort of covert Chinese Communist Party influence was really the beginning of my journey as a China studies researcher. Uh, when I was a student at the Australian National University, I could see the university's Chinese Students and Scholars Association working with the, the local Chinese embassy to exert influence, to coerce uh, groups that were pushing out dissident views about China. Uh, so it was really something that was staring me right in the face and, and that I've focused on ever since then. 
Yeah, and, and tell me about the premise of of the book itself because it's a fascinating one. Uh, I think now, if we fast forward to 2022, there are many who will agree with you in the rearview mirror, but at the time, probably would have disputed uh, some of the assertions that you make in this book about what exactly China was up to. What was it up to when it came to shaping this perception of its rise? That's right. The book is is really a kind of revisionist history that that takes a a different view to the past and and the present of China's relationship with the rest of the world, rather than um, arguing that current tensions are something particular to Xi Jinping. I've traced them back to something, you know, beginning in the 1980s, but really crystallizing, I think, in the 1990s, when China was looking at the Tiananmen Massacre, uh, looking at US power on display in the Gulf War, looking at the collapse of the Soviet Union, and really believing that its system, uh, its political culture was fundamentally incompatible with continued US power. And I see that as the start of this long-term effort by uh, Chinese intelligence officers and politicians to convince the rest of the world that they intended to rise peacefully, that they would integrate into the existing international system, when we can quite clearly see now that that hasn't been the case. Yeah, and there were some real milestones there, whether it was acceptance into the WTO, there was this real idea uh, right around the world. And lots of people uh, posited this this idea that that with its rise, China would liberalize. And yet you found that even uh, during the 90s, when this whole idea was sort of first being formed in the aftermath of the crack of sort of the sanctions and so forth following Tiananmen, uh, the massacre in Tiananmen Square, um, that already back then, Chinese leaders were saying one thing in public and saying one thing behind closed doors. That's right. So a really good example of that was a speech that I found uh, delivered by Jiang Zemin, who was president of China at the time in 1993. And he's known to many Westerners and, and politicians who's in, who've engaged with him as quite pro-Western. You know, he he's famous for reciting the Gettysburg Address in kind of broken English and having a lot of affection for American culture. Um, and seen as someone who's very different from Xi Jinping, someone who you can sort of work with and, and make deals with. Uh, but what I found was that he was giving this secret speech to China's Ministry of State Security, this intelligence agency, in 1993, where he was saying things that were very different to the image he gave foreigners. In this speech, he was saying that you know the West is determined to put China down, uh, to constrain its growth, to turn it into a, a Western country, to split its territorial integrity. And that even though China is emphasizing economic development, uh, it can't do so at the cost of the power of the Chinese Communist Party. And it will never give up these, these rich communist traditions. So I think this, this really gives great insights into the kind of mindset where, you know, even if um, uh, Western policymakers were genuinely friendly towards China, wanted to help China rise, they did so with the understanding that they believed this would push China towards democratization. So I think even those sort of friends of China in capitals around the world were probably seen by the Chinese Communist Party as a threat, ultimately, just because of this, this focus on democratization. So it's really no surprise that China responded uh, through its covert agencies and other means by seeking to subvert the West, seeking to manipulate its understanding of, of China and where it's going. I, I, when I was there, of course, one of the subjects that often came up was was just how petrified leadership was in the aftermath of Tiananmen, but certainly after the fall, the chaos in Russia, I think, was one of those watching the Soviet Union collapse 
watching the chaos that ensued reminded many in Beijing and in Zhangnanhai that they didn't want that, that this was not going to be, they were never going to live through that, um, or at least if they, they could help it. How did they go about then establishing this ability to convince so many people that they were doing one thing when in fact, as you say, they were doing something different? I think there are always a range of voices within the Chinese Communist Party. And, and this book is is really focused on how China's Ministry of State Security, this one sort of peak intelligence agency, was active in, in shaping understandings of China. Um, and I've used open source methods to track a particular operation that I think really defines uh, this act of deception. And that's the whole theory of China's peaceful rise. This was proposed in 2003 by a leading advisor to the Chinese government. Uh, he gave a speech at the Boal Forum for Asia in front of hundreds of, of foreign guests. He toured the United States. He wrote uh, an essay in Foreign Affairs magazine promoting this concept. For a time, it was part of Chinese official policy. But what I found was that the uh, the vehicle through which he proposed and formulated and promoted this theory of China's peaceful rise, a think tank called China Reform Forum, was actually entirely set up and run by undercover Ministry of State Security intelligence officers. Uh, it was a vehicle that specifically was being run by influence operatives, specialists in shaping the West's understanding of China, specialists in elite influence operations. And they're actually there consistently behind the scenes as this theory of China's peaceful rise was being formulated and promoted. Um, and you could also see these undercover intelligence officers, for example, going into the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and talking about how they thought China was going to become democracy, how it was liberalizing, how it would reckon with the legacy of the Tiananmen massacre. But then behind closed doors, these are really the, the most committed, diehard communists within the party, uh, the most conspiratorial anti-Western thinkers within the Chinese Communist Party who went undercover to uh, tell foreigners that they thought China was going to become a democracy. So to me, that's a clear act of deception that uh, is a pretty strong indicator uh, that China actually had different intentions, or at least some of these key people within the Chinese Communist Party uh, recognized that the West wanted to see China become more democratic, become more liberal and peaceful, and were seeking to play up that expectation as they built their power. Alex, one of the things that struck me just looking through some of the things that have been written um, and listening to your interviews and so on is that Australia seemed to have caught on uh, recently, at least, to what was going on. A lot of other countries are still struggling to sort of figure out what exactly China's intentions are. Um, but what has changed and how is it that a country such as Australia managed to sort of start to put guardrails onto some of these activities? I really think Australia was quite unlikely. Uh, to actually wake up to this problem of covert influence operations against its political system from from China, uh, the penetration was was quite extensive. You know, had you had two of the top political donors to Australian major parties uh, have been accused of being agents of influence for the Chinese government, um, and they had successfully backed the political careers of several top politicians. Uh, they had, you know, used these debt. Use these donations to try to sway Australia's position on the South China Sea, uh, to recommend their friends as political candidates and advisors, and also position themselves as 
bridges between Australia and China. So politicians and government officials would go to these people to help them set up business deals and get meetings uh, on trips to China. Uh, so so th there really weren't that many top politicians in Australia who didn't have something to do with some of these alleged agents of influence. And I think that made it really hard to actually start sounding the alarm on it, getting the political will uh, behind behind it. But, you know, I think media investigations, um, books and scholarly works, uh, investigations inside of the Australian government all came together to kind of shift public attitude and and the opinions of of top politicians like our prime minister at the time, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, convincing them that you know, Australia really needed to do something about this problem of foreign political interference. And from there, we got a suite of legislation that actually criminalised some of these activities, which were perfectly legal until recently. And I think the most important thing has just been raising a lot of awareness about the fact that this is a real problem, that foreign states are seeking to manipulate our political system and don't have our best interests in mind as they do that. Australia paid a price for it too. China retaliated. Yeah, you know, like Canada, um, Australia has had two citizens detained in China uh, who remain in prison in China uh, on unclear grounds, you know, national security charges. Uh, there have been a range of economic sanctions and uh, bans applied to Australian goods. Um, and for a long time, Australia didn't have ministerial level contacts with the Chinese government. Um, so this is, you know, really, I think China trying to, you know, scare other countries off, uh, recognizing the problem of interference, speaking out about these kinds of activities, making an example out of Australia for sounding the alarm on covert operations. What would you say to Canada in all this? Because I think oftentimes here, people point to Australia as being a bit of the shining, uh, the guiding light on this one. Uh, I don't know if that, that might not come as a surprise, but what advice would you give to countries such as Canada who may not have moved as far or as fast as Australia has to try to counter this? Well, from what I've seen in Canada, um, Canada faces almost exact, exactly the same set of problems as Australia in this space. You know, extensive political influence activities, uh, divides within Chinese communities, uh, trade relations with China that, that complicate a lot of this, and also a lack of um, legislation is my understanding to effectively tackle uh, this kind of intelligence and influence activity. So I think these are all things that need to be dealt with. And the risks from not tackling uh, Chinese Communist Party interference are really quite extreme. You know, it, it binds your hands as you try to make policy on China. But perhaps one of the worst aspects of it is that it can marginalize ethnic Chinese communities and harm their civil liberties. There are a few recent prosecutions in the United States that I think really shed light on this, where uh, agents of the Chinese Communist Party have been arrested or, or accused of seeking to harass or even physically uh, coerce dissidents and, and members of Chinese communities for speaking out against the Chinese, com Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you know, media is another really big problem where the Chinese government has influenced it, you know, it controls WeChat, it's, it's bought up a lot of media, it's, it's influenced a lot of media. And this means that, you know, some people in Chinese communities are, are really being pulled apart from the countries that, that they live in. And if governments don't deal with that, it's, 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 you know, it's leading, it's going to lead towards more tensions and make this whole problem of tackling influence much harder. 
Because you mentioned even Australia was having trouble getting its message to um, what could be called overseas Chinese communities, but Chinese communities within Australia itself, just try to explain what it is they were, that they were doing so that it didn't feel like this was an attack on anyone of Chinese descent, but simply uh, a pushback against the regime. That's right. You know, what you saw happen in Australia uh, is that, you know, one of the most popular WeChat accounts on this Chinese social media app was actually being uh, covertly run by the United Front Work Department of the Chinese Communist Party. And then the rest of the media environment was also heavily influenced so that when the Australian government would say something about uh, its relationship with China, when it would launch a counter-interference operation by police, this would be misreported in Chinese language media. It would be framed as an attack on Chinese people. Uh, so I think the Chinese Communist Party really seeks to play up and enhance racial divides as a way of building its own influence in, in quite a pernicious and cynical way. Alex, we'll leave it at that. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's a fascinating book and uh, congratulations. And I think it's something that Canadians should be very aware of. It's been, uh, I'm, I'm glad you took the time to put it all down on paper. Yeah, thanks so much. I hope you'll enjoy the book.